And now please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, this morning we get to continue our sermon series on Christianity in the 21st century. This is a chance to consider deeply what it means to be a Christian today. I know many of you already have thought about these issues, but it never hurts to take things back to the basics and to lay out what we believe. Today, I'd like to address a topic a bit out of the ordinary for liberal pulpits. I'd like to talk about sex. Sex is one of those subjects that most of us would rather not talk about in public. It's something we might have strong opinions about, but it's not seen as appropriate to discuss in polite company. But this reticence in regards to sex all too often allows us to fall into views that are not well thought out, and in some cases, can be downright harmful. Moreover, for many people who are interested in Christianity, sex and perceived Christian views on sex prevent them from taking the religion seriously. I remember talking with Bob Tucker about the subject a couple years ago. Bob is a senior minister emeritus here at First Congregational Church, and he urged me to speak about sex regularly from the pulpit for just these reasons. He made it a habit over his long and distinguished career to preach about sex once a year. We are a faith that should be engaged with truth, including truth about taboo subjects. So here I am taking up Bob on his suggestion. The reality is, if we care to admit it, that we have some major problems with sex in our society, particularly when we think about what sex means in a Christian context. The standard view on sex in Christian circles is that there should be no sex outside of marriage. I'm sure you've heard this many times. It is, we're told, the proper biblical view of sex, unchanging over time. Yet in spite of this supposedly unchanging and this supposedly unchanging and eternal truth, it's remarkable how much sex has changed even within marriage since the mid-20th century. In the mid-20th century, sex was sex that was anything other than vaginal intercourse was viewed as dirty or wrong. Many states had laws in the books that prohibited anal sex or oral sex, regardless of whether it was in a homosexual or heterosexual couple. Sex was something good Christians were supposed to do to conceive of a child. It was not supposed to be about pleasure. Yet nowadays, you have conservative Christians who laud the pleasures of sex within the bonds of marriage. Has the Bible somehow changed? Has the ethic of sex, the eternal truth handed down directly from God, somehow now changed? It goes without saying that the conservative obsession with, with no sex before marriage comes with a whole array of issues. It forces Christians in their teenage years and early 20s to be in constant cycles of guilt over their natural desires. Christianity and sexual repression become inextricably linked in their minds. This leads, this, then it leads to people getting married far earlier than they might otherwise, and perhaps without the foresight that a commitment like marriage demands. It's no surprise that the highest divorce rates in the country are all in the so-called Bible Belt. I had two teammates on the crew team in college who were from conservative Christian families and who got married before graduating college. Both of them were divorced within four years and both independently told me to never get married because their experience was so toxic for them. Is this what it means to be Christian? But even though most liberal Christians do not hold the same prohibitions against premarital sex, the no sex before marriage ethic still holds remarkable power. Sure, you can have sex before marriage, we're told, provided you're in a long-term committed relationship. Have you heard that one before? Okay, okay. So when exactly is it okay to have sex? Not on the first date, surely, but maybe the second, the fourth? Does it matter how old you are? Do you hold teenagers to the same standard that you hold someone in, say, their mid-20s or mid-40s? If it varies, why does it vary? Modern dating has made these assumptions particularly tricky. More and more people meet online or through apps on their phones. 
Online dating can be great, especially for those who don't like to go to bars or who don't drink. And yet, online dating has its own pitfalls. It's relatively easy to get, to get a date for many people online. What that means is that you have a plethora of options and dates. So how are you supposed to choose one person? Should your choice depend at all on sexual chemistry? And if so, how can you find that out without having sex? If Christians were to say that you could only have sex once you were in a committed long-term relationship, you would not have many single people in their 20s or older in church, regardless of whether you're a liberal or a conservative. Then there's the whole unexamined problem of sex for people who are older. Usually when Christians make a big deal of no sex outside of marriage, they, consciously or not, make an exception for people over the age of 50. There are all sorts of reasons why people over the age of 50 might not want to get, might not want to get married. Perhaps they have families from their first marriages and don't want to get things tangled up. Perhaps they had bad experiences in earlier marriages or divorces and don't see the point of going through that again. But let's be clear, especially in the age of Viagra, older people are having sex. Several years ago, it made the news that the largest increase in sexually transmitted diseases was among the over 65 crowd. You tend not to have big spikes in STDs by playing pinochle. Do you hold older people to the same sexual ethics as those who are younger? Why or why not? Is that based on the Bible or your faith? Issues with sex certainly don't end there. There are lots of people who have what you might call untraditional marriages. It is increasingly common for people to have open marriages where the couple has sex outside of the marriage bonds without any deceit or cheating. It's something they choose. What do we make of that? I remember one of my professors in college who was a devout Roman Catholic lived apart from his wife, who was a professor at a, at a university in Canada. Their marriage was one of deep friendships, of a deep friendship and particularly intellectual, but it didn't have much in the way of sex. And this professor was also well known to go on dates with people around campus. But is an arrangement like this, an arrangement like the one they had wrong for Christians? Why or why not? There are also different cultural norms that come into play. Dating, courting, relationships, marriage, sex, these things do vary across different cultures and even across different Christian cultures. Should there be one clear sexual ethic for all Christians in all nations? Should cultural factors play a role? They certainly have in the United States since the 1950s. Finally, there's the whole issue of same-sex sexual relationships. While this congregation blessedly is strongly supportive of the LGBT community, how do we communicate our openness to that community and what exactly does it mean? Gay culture historically does not view things like sex and relationships and marriage in the same way as straight culture, rightfully or wrongfully. Gay men in particular tend to have more sex partners than straight people and open relationships are far more common. What should gay affirming Christians say about that? LGBT folks tend to be turned off from religion because of past judgment over their sexual orientation and because of their perception of what the Christian church views on sex. So what we say does make a difference. For all these reasons, we need to develop clear ethics around sex and thinking and think about the issues at play. We live in a highly sexualized culture and it has been that way at least since the 1970s. The internet with its easy access to pornography and Instagram with its endless photos of perfect bodies saturate our society. How should we respond as Christians? The easiest way to respond, and one that many Christians do instinctively, is to turn to the Bible. As Protestants, the Bible is the norm for our faith. So it begs the question, what does the Bible say about sex? One of the best known books on the Bible and sex is William Countryman's Dirt, Greed, and Sex. Countryman published the first version of his book in the late 1980s, and it was so popular that he published a revised edition 18 years later. 
Countryman argues that New Testament views on sex are related to two key issues. The first is the concern over purity. Purity concerns strike most contemporary Americans as odd. What does purity have to do with our life now? But the fact is that every culture has morals around purity, what is clean and unclean. You could best describe it as the yuck factor. For instance, eating snails, lobsters, or pigs seems quite normal, but eating dogs, rats, or slugs seems yucky. Why? It has to do with purity concerns and the way we conceive of what is clean or unclean. The same thing holds true for sexual matters. For some, same-sex relations are wrong because it seems instinctively yucky. It evokes an ew reaction when two people of the same gender kiss. But this, of course, is merely a construct. Now, the New Testament writers were good Jews and therefore share, shared many Jewish concerns for purity, including over sexual matters. The Greek word porneia, which, country, which countrymen translates as harlotry, is bad because it involves Jews having sex with non-Jewish prostitutes, particularly temple prostitutes. It's a polluting thing. One of the major debates in the New Testament is how Jewish Christians should address purity concerns with Gentile converts. How many and to what extent should Jewish laws around purity be respected by Gentile converts? According to countrymen, the New Testament, following the example of Jesus, insists on purity of the heart rather than purity in a physical sense. Christianity, therefore, has the task of reinterpreting what is pure and impure. The Bible does not give us clear answers. The other major concern for New Testament sexuality, according to countrymen, is property and property rights. Countryman claims that adultery and divorce are issues because they violate the property rights of a household. A woman was supposed to be a virgin at the time of marriage, otherwise she would be seen as damaged goods, in the sense that someone else had already exercised property rights over her. The same thing holds true with Jewish views on adultery. To have sex with a woman outside of marriage violated the property rights of a husband over his wife, for a married woman, or of a father over his, over his daughter for an unmarried one. Patriarchy and ownership drove these concerns, not some hallowed sense of no sex outside of marriage. In his teaching, Jesus undermined the property rights of a household and thus gave women far more rights than they had in traditional Judaism. Countryman argues that later New Testament writings, in order to achieve approval from the broader society for Christianity, began to relegate women back to their former status as property, or at least less than men. You can see from Countryman's careful analysis that the biblical world and its concerns are far, far different from our own. It makes little sense in a modern context to rely on first century Jewish notions of purity or property when determining sexual ethics. Now, Dale Martin, one of my professors at Yale, in his brilliant book on the disputes of 1 Corinthians, entitled The Corinthian Body, argues that different conceptions of the body between Gentiles and Jews helped explain the internal divisions in the Corinthian church, including the debates about sex. The detailed analysis of the New Testament context leads Martin to show how important purity concerns are for the Apostle Paul. For Paul, lust is a bad thing. Lust leads us to do bad things and, more importantly, pollutes the body. Paul argues that the best thing is to be celibate. Celibacy is the ideal Christian sexual ethic. But if you can't be celibate, you should be married, because marriage is sure to kill any lust you might have. A rather amusing perspective on marriage, and certainly sex within marriage, but such is life. That was Paul's view. Lust is bad. The less of it, the better, within marriage or without. In the early church, the ideal sexual ethic Paul followed Paul's lead. Celibacy was the highest calling for those who were capable of following it. If you weren't capable of being celibate, then you could get married. Over time, this view became the accepted norm in the Christian church. Now, in the late 4th century, a monk near Rome challenged the elevated nature of celibacy as being better than marriage. For Javinian, marriage was, was at least as good as celibacy. What do you think the response was? 
It was a thorough condemnation of Dravidian as a heretic. After that, the primacy and superiority of celibacy remained largely unchallenged until the Protestant Reformation. What I hope the preceding analysis shows is that if we want to find a carefully reasoned sexual ethic based on the historical context of the Bible, we won't have much luck. Society and culture today are far removed from the biblical context when it comes to sexual ethics. What people thought in the first century about sex is not determinative for any church today of any stripe. Churches that claim to be thoroughly based on the Bible do not derive their sexual ethics from the first century, but through their own interpretation of select texts in light of human experience today. That doesn't mean all is lost, far from it, but it does mean we have to engage in the process of interpretation. A clear ethic of sex does not exist in the Bible. We have to think theologically about sex and sexual ethics to see what makes sense for Christianity in the 21st century. Now, two weeks ago, I preached about the nature of sin and the human condition. I argued that, as humans, we are broken. We suffer from sin, that is separation, from others, from ourselves, and from God. What we seek is salvation, a path to wholeness, peace, and healing. I also argued that one persistent source of sin is the dualist tendencies that we have in our thinking. This is particularly relevant in the context of sex. So often we've been taught to hate our bodies and our bodily desires. Our bodies and their desires are somehow evil and need to be repressed or, and harshly controlled. This type of repression only leads to self-hatred and to behaving in ways that we later regret. Is there a way that we can construct a sexual ethic that is thoroughly Christian while also leading to wholeness and healing? I would say yes, without a doubt. It begins by honoring our bodies. Our bodies are blessed and wonderful. Enjoying a great meal that nourishes our body can be fantastic. In a similar way, sex can be wonderful and a true blessing. Not only can it be fun, but it can deepen your connection with another person. Sex should be celebrated, not denigrated. In Genesis 1, God does not create human beings as solitary creatures. We are created for others and with others. Part of that, at least according to Genesis 1, is sexual union as well. In our reading from Romans 13, we read Paul arguing that love, agape, should be our highest ideal and something that trumps any list of do's or don'ts that society puts forth. I hope, I earnestly hope, that you've had incredible sexual, sexual experiences. You can experience God's love and presence through sex with another person. That is a good thing and a holy thing. It doesn't have to fit in any predetermined category. Good sex is not just sex that leads to procreation. That's nonsense. God gave us bodies that enjoy sex regardless of whether it's procreative or not. Likewise, good sex does not have to be only within the bonds of marriage. Marriage is a societal construct. It only became part of the Christian liturgy in the Middle Ages. The early Congregationalists saw marriage as a legal compact and not a holy right. Judges performed marriages in early Massachusetts and Connecticut, not clergy. Especially in our present day, when people get married older, for good reasons, and when we have birth control readily available, it makes little sense to say that the only licit sex is between two people in marriage. You can meet someone, have wonderful sex, and for whatever reason, that you decide that you don't want a relationship with that person. That doesn't invalidate that sex, and that certainly doesn't make it dirty. What does make sex dirty? What does make sex bad or sinful? When you hate yourself or your body, and you have sex merely to boost your self-esteem, that can be damaging sex. When sex is meaningless and there's no connection, that can leave us feeling empty or somehow used. When we have no respect for the other person or take advantage of a position of power, then sex is not about wholeness and connection, but about power. Likewise, when sex means lying to your spouse or partner and puts your relationship at risk, it can be a profound source of separation and sin. 
the question does come down to whether we can see love agape in a sexual connection. I do agree with Paul that when that is the case, the various rules that certain people in society create can only cause harm. Love, care, respect, leading to wholeness is the fulfilling of the law. I cannot shout this loudly enough from the rooftops to those who walk away from Christianity as a, res as a result of what they think the faith says about sex. So often Christian sexual ethics are not clearly thought out. People don't address the complexity of our situation today. Sex and our relationship to it are things that change over the course of our lives. Sex is not the same thing to a teenager that it is to someone in his or her 20s, 30s, or beyond. Things that are true for one person are not necessarily true for another. Some people can have quite natural and healthy open relationships, while others most certainly cannot. Some people don't find any fulfillment in sex outside a committed relationship, while others can form lifelong friendships and bonds that result from a one-night stand. When it comes to sex, one size truly does not fit all. The question is about healing, wholeness, connection, and love. Love in the sense of agape, of care and respect. This, for me, is a sexual ethic that makes sense for our time. Next week, we'll look more closely at the person of Jesus. We'll discover a lot of cool things when we look at Jesus, but two things in particular stand out in relation to our subject today. Jesus was someone who was not bound by conventions of his day. He declared clean what others saw as dirty and called out as unjust what others ignored. Jesus also, like Paul, returned to love agape. If we can do that with regards to sex, we're well on our way to a coherent and grace-filled ethic for the 21st century.